The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's very refreshing for me to see all these young individuals make the statements that they're making today, roughly 49 years ago. Uh, people asked me after we did the demonstration in Mexico City, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you accomplished? You know what's going to happen to you? I said, well, you seem like you think I'm a bad guy. You're terrible. I said, well, if you think that I'm bad, wait for the next generation. Well, here we are 49 years later, the next generation, generation has checked in. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have a very special show. It's me in front of a live audience at Wake Forest interviewing three of my absolute heroes, three generations of athlete activists, three people who are dead serious about using sports as a platform to change the world. It is me on stage with, check this out, 1968 Olympian John Carlos, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, NBA legend of the 1990s, and Ibtahaj Muhammad, who just returned from the Olympics, where she became the first Muslim woman wearing a hijab to medal in the history of the United States. And thank you so much to everybody at Wake Forest. Thank you, Melissa Harris-Perry. Also, though, on this week's show, I've got some choice words about what came out of the meetings with NFL players and a select group of NFL owners. They sat down across the table last week, and we need to assess what was won and what was not won so we can have a clear sense of where we go from here. And that's going to be the entire show, and I'm so proud of it. So please buckle up and listen to John Carlos, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, and Ibtahaj Muhammad. It really is something special. We will not be talking about anthem protests tonight. And that's because calling them anthem protests is the language of Donald Trump. These are protests against racial inequality and police violence that are being practiced during the anthem. And there's a huge difference there. So just so that's clear. And the second thing I wanted to say is, you know, we do this thing on my son's birthday where we call it dessert first where his birthday dinner, he gets to eat dessert first. And I'm going to start the questioning here with dessert first, which means the question that's on my mind, the question that's on your mind, the question of this moment. And I'll start with Dr. John Carlos here and work my way down the line. And that question is just is the one that I think is on all of our minds. And that's, Dr. John, if you could talk, please, about your feelings of seeing this new generation of athletes 
take up a fight and also use a lot of the same symbology and that space during the anthem to raise these issues of racial inequality and police violence. What is that like, sir? Well, it's a very good question. Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's, it's very refreshing for me to see all these young individuals uh, make the statements that they're making today. 50 years ago, uh, roughly 49 years ago, uh, people asked me after we did the demonstration in Mexico City, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you accomplished? You know what's going to happen to you? I said, well, you seem like you think I'm a bad guy. You're terrible. I said, well, if you think that I'm bad, wait for the next generation. <laughs> well, here we are 49 years later, the next generation generation has checked in. So when I see these guys, it kind of make me think to myself, wow, I didn't know at that particular time that I was a gardener, a horticulturer, and I planted seeds and nurtured the earth and watered it. And now this beautiful tree is there. And all of these individuals that I see throughout the United States, not just merely in athletics, but in the arts, in the business world, high school, college, they're the fruits of my labor. So I feel very refreshed and invigorated to know that the fight is going to warm up because we're going to squash this thing called prejudice and bias as best we can. Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, first of all, great to see you. Just, I would not be a sports and politics writer. Like I would, I don't know what I'd be right now if it wasn't for Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. When he took his stance in 1996 during the anthem, I was a college student, and that was a life-changing pivot for me. So I guess I'll take this opportunity just first, just to say thank you, thank you. Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. Thank you for being a pivot in my life. And. Now my question though is the same for you because it's like you did this in the mid 90s and now it's 2017 and not only are you seeing this incredibly and you were you were so alone when you did it and now you're seeing so many people do it what are your thoughts when you see this new generation uh well i agree with john carlos uh, it's definitely refreshing uh we spoke about this earlier at the same time that uh it's unprecedented you know, what you're seeing now with the amount of athletes from all cross sections of sports, uh, female, male, just, you know, uh, taking a, taking a stand, making a position. Uh, but, but to me, they're, they're symbolizing, uh, the concept, and I talk about this a lot, of Ubuntu. You know, um, the story of this anthropologist creating this game among children and, putting this fruit in a basket at the end and saying whoever can get to it can have it all to themselves as individuals, but they all joined hands together. And when they went and ran to the tree, the, uh, the anthropologist were, was surprised. He said, why did you do that? They said, Ubuntu. They said, how can one be happy when the rest of us are sad? That this is a psychology among African tribes that I am because we are. So to me, that they're representing this concept that this is bigger than them. Mm. You know, and, and it's just really refreshing to see. Wow. And, and Ibtahaj, you as an Olympian, this is your generation of athletes doing this work and you're part of a, a new organization, which I think we'll talk about later, called Athletes for Impact, that's trying to build something long-lasting to support these kinds of struggles. But what, what are your thoughts when, when you see 
like these NFL players and many others, of course, from the high school level on doing these or taking sports and treating sports as a political space. I'm from a very small sport in comparison to like NFL or NBA. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was always told as an athlete that um, there wasn't a space for my voice within sport. So there was a time uh, before the Olympics where I would tweet or I would, you know, post about um, a social issue that concerned me. And I was told that I had to delete it because it wasn't it didn't reflect, you know, my national governing body in the way that they wanted to be represented. Mm. So I felt like I was almost being bullied into not using my voice. And um, when I qualified for the Olympics, I was like very fortunate to find a management company that encouraged me to find my voice. And I'll never forget my agent saying to me, and my agent is this half Japanese, half white woman, but um, very, very socially conscious. And she said to me, if you don't use your voice to speak up for people who look like you, who's going to do it? And I'm like, man, that's that's what I've been waiting to hear. I was almost like chomping at the bit, um, waiting for really just someone to say and encourage me to do it. And um, I will say that having the desire to do so as an athlete and using your platform wouldn't wouldn't be possible without athletes like Mahmoud or um, Dr. John Carlos. And I was telling um, John in the back that I had a poster of him on like this famous poster. Oh, that's not the poster. That's me. But uh, <laughs> I had this famous poster of him. Um, I like that was the first thing I did when I got to campus. Um, when I, I went to Duke, when I got there, it was the first thing I did was buy this this poster. And I feel like it was a rite of passage for all the black kids on campus. Everybody had this poster. You had mouth. You had. Uh, you have Muhammad Ali, and you had uh, this very profound moment um, on the podium in the 68 games. And having athletes lead the way and show us um, what it's like to not just jeopardize your own safety and your own livelihood and that of your family, but even your own financial, your own financial wealth for the benefit of, of others, that's what life is about. It's not about money. It's about leaving the world a better place than, than we have now. As we're staying in the present before we go in the past, I got to ask the follow-up question, which is all the panelists spoke very positively about seeing these athletes model social justice as athletes and politicizing the field of play. We have a president of the United States who has chosen to demonize these athletes, who has chosen to make this into a national issue, who has tweeted more about the NFL and their lack of patriotism than he has tweeted about Puerto Rico, for example. Now, I want to ask you guys your thoughts about the president's response to this and what it says about this country right now. Just a light question, John. Well, the president uses this as a, a tool to uh, keep himself in the spotlight. Now, he talks about these guys are disrespecting the flag. We all know that it wasn't about the flag. Mr. Kaepernick used the flag as I used the podium in Mexico City. Where else can he get the attention of the world other than to do it at the National Anthem? And had I done it anywhere else, any track meet in Europe, Asia, or in front of the Apollo Theater, I would have never gotten the attention and reached out to the far ends of the earth making a statement. So the president does this in terms of trying to sway 
public opinion. Oh, they're unpatriotic. You know, I was on a show a week or so ago, and, and my question to the president was, I said, uh, Mr. President, I remember when uh, I was watching you run your campaign, and before you decided to run, you chose to take my president and said that he was an American citizen. And you requested to see his birth certificate. You pushed it for eight months or more. I said, I would like to see right now, here and now, John Carlos as an American citizen, I'd like to see your father's discharge papers from the military. I'd like to see your discharge papers from the military or your son's discharge papers from the military. I noticed I didn't get a tweet the next day based on the fact that they never served in the military. And I had to make it clear also that those soldiers that he's talking about, they put their lives on the line to give Mr. Kaepernick and any individual that decides to take a knee or raise their fist to the sky the First Amendment right, the freedom of speech and expression. Now, he can tell them that they're wrong in doing what he's doing. He want to take their First Amendment rights away, but yet and still he can get up and call them sons of bees. And the America's not offended by that. So there is a quick and a solid divide in this country about how people of color see certain things, and then other people on the other side of the aisle are so narrow-minded that they will not release their minds enough to try and weigh this through their minds. They're just being led like the critics say, Mr. Trump is a great man. Follow him. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's a lot more people in the world that understand what these individuals are doing, and I think people such as those that's here on this stage we anticipate letting the world know that we're going to open your minds as, as, as far and as wide as we can for you to be critics of this government for yourselves. Michael, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well at, about the organized backlash, but also isn't it a remarkable thing, though, that given Trump's focus on this and given his incredible financial connections to NFL franchise owners, that these NFL owners have still, people might have seen this last week, had to give back and meet with the players? and actually do things like commit money to social justice initiatives that players were involved in. I mean, isn't that kind of, and they didn't have any rule changes that would abridge their First Amendment rights. I mean, isn't that kind of a remarkable statement about the power of protest and solidarity that these athletes have shown? Uh, no question, I was just thinking the same thing. The fact that they have been consistent and relentless in protesting and haven't wavered, um, this is, uh, this is what, what can be produced. Mm -hmm. uh, this is how changes are brought about. I just think it is, is a, his statement was just, as they say, very unpresidential. Uh, I think he's operating, me personally, on a high level of, of ignorance and arrogance, and it's sad, um, you know, trying to force people. And, and to make this an issue of the flag, as you said before, and to deflect from the original reason why. Um, but I think people are, you know, you can see one thing on the media, but in the streets, I think mm -hmm. people really know what's happening. But it's not always going to be told when you see it, mainstream media. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's just making himself look more foolish day by day, these yeah. statements. But it's scary. It's, it's just scary that this type of person can, can get on there on his soapbox and, and mention these things. And as he said, mentioning the, the, the sons of a bees, I got immediately offended because, you know, I'm looking at on the street, Mm -hmm. 
you know, you call them also by extension the mothers mm -hmm. as well as the parents mm -hmm. this offensive name. And I mean, what gives you the right to do that? That's where I went when he said that. Mm. I mean, you know, on the street, I mean, really, those are fighting words. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I believe, I believe the, the Chris Paul tweet was, let him say it to one of their faces. And really putting it that directly. Now, it has the same question to you. And I mean, especially like as, you know, someone as an Olympian, like, like what has it been like to see the president of this country respond to people exercising their rights in this way? And what, what, is, your, what is your critique of that? Um, I don't know if you guys all saw the press conference um, where I think he, when he w was in Puerto Rico and I think they were just with some, um, I don't know w what exactly these people's positions were, but when um, he, he turned to the guy next to him and he says, well, you know, Katrina was far worse. You know, thousands of people died in Katrina. And how many people died? A dozen or so. Uh, yeah, like consider yourself lucky. You know, because we had thousands die in Katrina. And then at the end, he starts th chucking paper towels at people like footballs. And I'm like, what world are we living in, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have someone who behaves in such a manner. It's, it's become a, like a norm. A lot of people don't know that this happened, number one. But then also, it's just like, yeah, well, you know, that's a president. And um, it's scary that we live in this moment. I was, I spoke with the Muslim Student Association earlier, and I was telling them as as a Muslim woman, for me, this has been the most difficult time um, to just exist. I've never felt so much discrimination on a daily basis from people. And that's saying a lot as an African-American, right? Because we experience microaggressions every day. But for whatever reason, it's just different. I feel like people are very confident to discriminate and to be mean and have these negative interactions, um, which to be honest, I'm always very shocked and perplexed by because it's not a norm for me to start my day off um, with this negative energy. But um, it's becoming a part of my daily existence as a Muslim woman in this country. And it's disheartening that, you know, we have our commander in chief be someone who is so like far gone um, and is on, you know, a boat to the land of ignorance that mm. I mean, I, it's it's hard to fathom that this is the world we live in, and I know that we we tell each other that we have to, you know, keep moving forward, but it's hard when you feel like we're taking steps back every day. Mm -hmm. um, if someone would have told me 10 or 15 years ago that it would be harder to be a black woman, it would be harder to be a Muslim woman, like, you know, 15 years from now, I, I would say no way, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is... This is coming after having two terms of an African-American president. I never imagined we would be in this space. Mm. It's like uh, another sports person, Greg Popovich, said this past week, and I see a lot of nodding heads, but unfit for the office, and then he went through it. He said emotionally, intellectually, and psychologically. Unfit for the office. We get evidence of that every day. And a tweet that I thought was very wise, someone said, after Trump did this morning tweet thing that he usually does, I guess, in the bathroom, someone tweeted, 7.30 a.m., already exhausted. And that's that feeling. And I also think that's why so many people have invested so much you know, heart of, and so much of themselves in these football players who've been protesting. Because in this time where I think a lot of us feel very lost, here's this visible dissent 
on the highest possible stage. And so for so many people who aren't football fans, it means so much to see these guys succeed because it's, it's, it feels hard out there on the daily business. It's like, hey, wait, these folks are fighting, so maybe we can fight too. You know, when you sit back and you, and you look at what's, what's taking place, it kind of made me go back in time. And, and I think about Frederick Douglass and, and, and in terms of his work as an abolitionist. And I think about his partner, John Brown. You sit back and you say, why is it America doesn't mention John Brown in its history anywhere? And then I thought about Peter Norman that was in the Olympics with me. Why did you not hear about Peter Norman for almost 49 years? Then you think about the NFL white players that's out there that's lending support to these black players. Why is it that you don't hear about them as well? Because they want you to think that white folks really don't give a hoot about equality and justice and freedom for all people in the United States or on this planet. So, you know, we as human beings, we have to foster the fact that blacks are not alone in this quest for equality for everyone. White people out there, we have white people in this audience right now because they're concerned about the complexity of this situation in society today. But we can no longer let them paint the picture the way they want it painted. You know, you might think because you're sitting out there and we're sitting up here that we're the ones that are supposed to turn up the volume. You have the same opportunity to turn up the volume when you are in that situation. I don't care whether it's at work or whether it's at the baseball field or at the grocery store. If you see something wrong, it's your responsibility to turn up the volume. And you'd be surprised as to who will stand behind you and say, I got your back. Mm-hmm. And you don't look around until after it's said and done, you look back and say, wow, hit this guy or this woman don't even look like me. Mm-hmm. Or they made me feel comfortable to know that they's on the same track as me. So remember guys, this is not our fight. This is our fight, okay? We'll be back in just a moment with more from this remarkable panel, but first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. For 150 years, The Nation magazine has given you the best in unembedded journalism. Just this past week, they produced some amazing, amazing coverage of issues ranging from Bob Mueller's impeachment proceedings and what that could mean to grassroots stories about schools and segregation. It really is a remarkable publication. It's putting out media that nobody else is doing and media that's absolutely critical for navigating these difficult times. And also, I do have to say, if you go to thenation.com slash subscribe and for a very, very small amount of money actually subscribe to The Nation, not only do you have access to tons more articles – but you support the continuation of this podcast. So go to thenation.com slash subscribe and enjoy what is offered. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. As these players, they give these incredibly beautiful explanations for what's going through their mind when they're taking that knee. You know, and they think about their family. They think about people who might have been in the military and their family and what they came home to after they were in the military. They think about people they knew who were hurt by the police in this country, people they were supposed to trust. They have these stories about what goes through their mind because it's such an intense experience to put yourself out there like that. So I don't go to mock mood first. And if you could talk a little bit, like when you were standing out there during the anthem, I mean, can you believe that 
Like, this drove white people crazy in the 1990s. I'm, I'm just, the 90s were a trip. This drove people crazy. You know, white people just wanted to watch Friends and Full House. And then the next thing you know, you've got this basketball player doing this. And um, Mahmoud, I mean, I, I was hoping maybe you could explain about first what your motivations were for even doing it, and then also what was riding through your head as you were doing it. Well, uh, I'll try to keep it short, but let me let me just say something about what John Carlos said earlier. Um, and, and the same thing happened to me when I took the stand that I took. There's this perception oftentimes that it's just, in, in, in this case, it's just a black issue. Black people are just concerned. They're not white people that are equally concerned about what's happening. Well, when I was, when I did what I did, they try to make it, uh, seems like a Muslim issue. Yes. Right? Not, you know, and I was, I was literally thinking globally. Um, but there were so many, because now you have social media, right? You can't really control the narrative the way you did then. But I had so many uh, letters coming in from people who were atheists, people who were Jewish, people who were Christian, uh, white, black, Native American, saying they were very, of course you had the, the negative mail, but you had a lot of people that were very supportive saying we're with you, we stand for, but those voices were silent. You, you didn't hear those. Now it's a little different. Um, so, uh, and, 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 and for me, speaking about the motivation, uh, it all started for me in college with the autobiography of Malcolm, just reading his book, how articulate he was, how courageous he was. I wasn't that type of person. And I knew that I had to make changes in my life at some point. I didn't know how it was going to come about. And his book influenced me to look into Islam, and I began to follow it. And I began to read more. And in my reading, uh, I came across a lot of different authors, the Noam Chomsky's, Gore Vidal's, uh, Randall Robinson's, Amos N. Wilson's, and I'm just reading everything I can get my hand on, and I'm coming across stuff that I'd never, Aaron Daddy Roy's, that I'd never heard before. And then I started to feel like I've been cheated. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, you know, somebody pulled the sheet over my head, and, and this information that if I would have known it as a young man, the difference that it could have made, and so I can't get those years back. So as I'm reading this, I knew that, you know, at the same time, as they say, to whom much is given, much is required. You know, when you get knowledge, at some point, and I saw that, you know, I understand that there was a process that as I began to read, at some point you want to share it. And then as you begin to share it, you see that a lot of people think the way you think on a lot of different issues, and they challenge you. Then what happens, the next stage is you develop your confidence, and then that confidence turns into courage. You say, I got to do something. And so for me, uh, these are the things that motivated me, and I eventually had to just take those steps. And as we talked earlier, sometimes we, we sit and we say, well, wait until I get, it's like students in college. Well, I'm going to go four or five, whatever years. Then after that, I'm going to go get a job. Uh, or I want to get all the information I can, then I'm going to move on it. Well, that almost assures you you're not going to move because you're never going to know everything. So my thing is whatever I know or think I know, let me move on it, and God will show me the rest. Yeah. And something else that was said, I'm going to end with this, is that that sticks with me day to day is Erin Dottie Roy, and I say this all the time, she has a quote that I love. She said, and I started thinking about it, once you see something, you can't unsee it. To be silent, to say nothing is just as political an act as speaking out. Either way, you're accountable. So our silence, we see things all the time. 
everybody up in here, and we know that it's wrong. And okay, we're not all going fight to fight the same, you know. But there is something that we can do. But being silent about it, I said, well, shoot, if being silent is going to make me just as a count, I might as well go for broke. And so this is the position that I took, and these are the things that, some of the things that influenced me. I'm having a little surreal moment because when I do talks about sports and politics by myself, I always quote, and now you don't know this, Mahmoud, but I always quote you quoting Arundhati Roy. I, I love her. I know, right? It's some Inception <laughs> style public speaking. And then somewhere there's some student quoting me, quoting my, all right, forget it. It's too much. Oh, but, but it does, same question to you because I, I can't imagine it wasn't profoundly emotional given your trailblazing status, being at Rio, and not just being there, that was historic enough, but then also meddling. And then there you are, the anthem is playing. What, what was going through your mind at that moment? Um, first, let me say, like you said, for me qualifying was like everything. Um, in my family, everyone knew that we couldn't talk about the Olympics. This is prior even to the qualification, uh, because for me, never having seen um, a Muslim woman on Team USA on the Olympic level, never having seen a woman of color on the United States uh, women's saber team, it was almost like it couldn't happen, right? I know that there was a possibility I, I would qualify, a possibility I wouldn't qualify, but for me, um, if I just put my head down and I worked really hard, I didn't have to think about anything about the Olympics. So that wasn't really even, uh, I guess, part of my thought process. And in my house, you couldn't talk about it at all. But when I qualified and like the, the angry hate tweets started coming in, like of course the, the tweets of uh, uh, support, but also a lot of the messages I would get, the death threats I would get, which people don't know, um, that's when I realized at that moment of qualifying as the first Muslim woman on Team USA was almost bigger than myself, right? Because it immediately kind of flipped the narrative on its head, um, this narrative that we've kind of been force-fed of who a Muslim woman is. Like, mm -hmm. in our mind, when we think of who the Muslim woman is, she's Arab, she wears all black, she doesn't talk, she's oppressed, she's from, you know, the Middle East, and mm -hmm. here I am, like, you know, this American woman uh, who's black, who doesn't speak Arabic, um, who, you know, is very vocal and verbal and participates in sports, and it just immediately challenged everything um, of what we, I think, as a global community, think of Muslim women. And um, when I get to the games, I'm so excited to be there. I remember I, in my individual match, I, I lost my second match um, in the round of 16, and that's when, like, the trolling was almost at its worst, because it's like, I told you she would amount to nothing, and like people are so like people love to see you fall. They like love it. And little did they know I was so excited to be at the Olympics. I was like, I lost. This is so exciting, right? <laughs> um, but you know, a few days later, thank God, won a medal with my team. And um, like the hate tweets kind of ceased because again, people don't want to see you win. But uh, to to bring home with a medal was definitely not something that I went into the Olympic Games expecting. I feel very thankful to be in this position and have this moment happen in my life. But I also feel like it's this profound moment for um, for Muslim women in a sense that it it shows Muslim girls and non-Muslim girls. It shows girls in general or little boys or whoever who've ever been told no at any point in their life. I remember being a kid and being told that I shouldn't fence because I was black. Right, that I should try basketball instead. 
or, um, you know, I was Muslim and Muslim girls don't play sports. So I remember all these different moments as a kid where I was told no. Um, and that I felt like that medal was, is, is for, was for that 12 year old me, right? When I was a kid and, and really is for anyone in general who's ever been told no, like this is, I think a defining moment or was a defining moment and to show that you literally can have anything that you want, regardless of what these naysayers um, may have to say and try to like dictate and change your journey just by um, being negative and, and throwing obstacles in your path. It's really about uh, hard work. And I remember even before I went to the Olympics, I, I think I went to a talk that Mahmoud had given and to hear his story, I mean, if you guys ever have the opportunity to hear him tell his story um, and his process and in, in working hard, that even changed the way that I trained as an athlete. Um, I realized, man, I'm not working hard enough. I will never make uh. NBA dollars in my life, but I was like, I am not working hard enough. I need to work a little bit harder. But I feel like having um, the opportunity to hear stories from other athletes and um, to really learn and gauge even how hard or not hard you're working has helped really uh, project my career. Mm. Wow. So you Mahmoud with the work ethic. John has stories of sitting in the stands eating French fries and popcorn and then just saying, oh, I guess I got to go win a race and going down, putting on the cool shades. Yeah, if only it were, it were that easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs> but John, same question to you, and I know this might be the question that you've gotten more than any other over the last 49 years, but what was going through your mind as you raised your fist on that metal stand in Mexico City? Well, first thing that went through my mind was vision that I had when I was seven years old. Uh, the same picture that took place that day, I saw in a vision as a, as a young kid, seven years old in Lenox Avenue, New York. I was in a forum. I didn't know what stadium was. I didn't know what athletics was. I was standing on a box. I was by myself standing on a box and all the people in the audience were just yippee ki and as I said, they were so excited. And it took a minute for me to realize that they must be excited about something that I did, because God never showed me what I did. But when it dawned on me that they were applauding for me, and I'm right-handed, and I always tell people I've knocked a lot of guys out with this. <laughs> but in this vision, I'm going to wave to the people with my left hand. And, you know, as a little kid, you know, you wouldn't wave as high as you can get your hand up. And just about where you see this picture, that's where my hand froze in time. Because like someone snapped a, the, the finger or hit a switch, and all the joy and happiness turned to anger and venom. And they started booing, and they started hissing and throwing things and spitting, name-calling. And I'll never forget, I, 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 I got through the vision, and we were going to dinner that night. We go to dinner about 5, 36 o'clock. And my father could see that I was traumatized, and he said, Johnny, what's the matter? I said, Daddy, I was in a movie. He said, you was in a movie? I said, yeah. He said, well, what happened? I said, Daddy, they was happy about something I did, and then they got mad at me, and they started throwing things at me and calling me names. And I remember my father brought me into his ribs, and he was telling me, he said, son, nobody's going to bother you. He said, my job is to love you, protect you, house you, feed you, and see that you get a good education. Nobody's going to bother you. And I remember he looked over my head and he said to my mother, he said, Vi, 
It looked like God's got something special for this kid. We have to wait and see what it is. Fifteen years later, that exact same thing happened in that victory stand. So that's the first thing I thought of, that God chose me for this. But, you know, you know, you want me to talk about that, but I just want to talk about the glove and the fist. You know, a lot of people actually say, what was with the glove and the fist? You know, and then they try and editorialize it like, black power, black power, You're like we was going to burn up America. But if anybody and everybody here take your hand and just hold your hand up like that. All right, see how free that feel? That's a free, free, free flow. But take that hand and ball that hand up to a fist. See how solid and strong it is? Well, just imagine if all of us here had the same mindset and we are here separate with this mindset. And someone says, you know, if we just take that phone that the lady had there on the floor and we can move that phone across the aisle. And Mark jumped down, he tried to move it, and he can't move it. Dave looked at him and said, man, you know, you didn't move it, man, because you didn't put your hips into it. Let me show you how to do it. And Dave jumped down and he tried to do it. But in the process of them trying to do it, we realize collectively, if we unite ourselves and come together, we become a very powerful force. This is what the young players in the NFL or young actors and actresses in the arts, if they was to realize this, you know, when you sit back and you think about the NFL or the Olympic Committee or, or any corporate entity, you know, you have to look at your life in terms of you being that cow or direction, them being that child. And they'll tell you, hey, behave yourself out there. I want you standing for that pledge. Don't you get down on one knee because I'm the cow that gives the milk. And you look at that, you say, yeah, well, I'm intimidated because a lot of people get intimidated when you hear that. But you have to think beyond that and say to yourself, say, well, you know, he's right. He is the cow that gives the milk. But I'm the grass that the cow has to eat in order to give that milk. If there's no grass, there sure is no cow. So when you sit back and you think about it, if they just hold together, it's going to bring a lot of people to the table. And that's what this whole thing is about, bringing people to the table mm -hmm. to make them say, hey, man, I know you don't want to be here, but you're going to be here. Mm -hmm. Why are you going to be here? Because you stand to lose a lot of money if you don't come here. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is steadfast. Now remember, when I did my thing 49 years ago, I like to tell people, I didn't have $5 in my bank account. When Mr. Kaepernick did his thing, he had at least $5 million in his. <laughs> so as Sister said earlier, it's not about the money. It's about the principle. It's about the principle. And we realize that in this principle, you have to say, I'm not doing this for me. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for my offspring, for my kids and my kids' kids. Because they ain't not going to change overnight. But I want to make sure the train is headed in the right direction before I leave here. Mm. Now, a lot of people think about why the cabinet do it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like a crazy sort of guy. Most people don't think like I think. He did it because he was tired of black people and people of color being abused and, and murdered by law enforcement. Those individuals are supposed to protect you. But see, my attitude about them is, man, if they're going to do certain things trying to set a precedent to me by killing us, I have to set a precedent to them too. Not by getting a gun to say I'm going to kill them, 
or putting something in their brain. I can't beat them. If I get a gun, they got a cannon. If I get a cannon, they got a bazooka. If I get a bazooka, they got a bomb. So I can't beat them that way. But I can penetrate their brain. And when they come to me and put the chokehold on me, man, I tell them, I say, man, you made a big mistake. What do you mean I made a mistake? What do you mean he made a mistake? Man, he made a big mistake. Mm. I said, because he's trying to kill me, and I don't have no fear about death because I'm going to die one day anyway. But the mistake you made is that you made a drastic mistake by letting me see your face. Because when I die, wherever I go, I'm going to wait for you because I know you're coming. I don't want you to think that this is resolved because you took my life. I'm committed until God says, totally over. Why? Because I thought about my kids as a young man. I thought about my kids. What is going to happen to my kids if I'm here right now before God in the world and I'm going to sit back and allow this not just to go on in my neighborhood, but around the world and other people's neighborhoods. You know, the greatest thing about track and field, that we had an opportunity to see the world. How can I see people suffering the same way I am and be concerned about me being an Olympic legend and me being the gold medal or the bronze medal? That ain't about nothing. Now, I was telling a sister earlier, I said, you know, you, you, you go to the Olympic Games and, and a lot of guys get tricked. They all into the medals. But I'm off of Lenox Avenue. I wasn't into the metal. I was into that Brinks truck. Who's taking that money home? I wasn't getting none of it. My kids wasn't getting none of it. As I made a statement, what, what how long ago they made this statement? Uh, right after the game. 49 years, I guess. And the guy was talking about, you, you won the medal. And I said to him, I said, yeah, man, but the kids around my block can't eat gold medals. And their kids can't eat gold medals. And it still stands today. So if we don't step up now, as a nation or a race called the human race, we're going to go down in fiery flames. Mm. Yeah. So it wasn't about Mexico, uh, what I thought on the stand. It was about what I was projecting to society on the stand. I was at a rally in front of NFL headquarters for Colin Kaepernick in August. And it was one of the coolest rallies I've ever been at in my life. It was 2,000 people, loud, boisterous, and right on 50th and Park Avenue in New York City. It was a beautiful thing. And it was not people from 50th and Park Avenue who were at this rally. And one of the speakers was a, a, a woman about 80 years old, still active in her NAACP chapter. And she said, I'm out here because one of my great regrets is that I was – I did not organize for Muhammad Ali in the 1960s. And I did not organize for Tommy Smith and John Carlos because we looked at those, we thought those protesting athletes, we thought it was cool. We thought it helped us, but we didn't realize that they needed our solidarity and that they needed our help. And that was a mistake that we made in the 60s. And I'll be damned if I repeat that mistake now that I get another chance. And she said, I've been waiting, I've been waiting 50 years to get the chance to right that wrong. And you should have like, you could have heard a pin drop on 50th and Park Avenue because she was like the cane and everything. It was unbelievable. And so I, I did want to ask you guys, like, like Mahmoud, I mean, you, you made this incredible act of public dissent at a time when the level of struggle in this country was really low in the mid-1990s. What kind of solidarity and support did you get at that time? And what kind of support did you get 
when you found yourself outside the league looking in because of your politics? Well, it, well, it definitely wasn't on the level of where it is now. There's no question. But um, it, it was the support that I was getting was, was more behind the scenes, uh, individuals here and there, but definitely not like organizations from what I can remember. But I, I wasn't even focused on that, really. Uh, you know, because, I mean, I don't want to sound uh, hyper-religious, but God is my support, you know, regardless, and that's the way I move. And I believe that, uh, you know, moving that way for me, uh, I'm always moving from a position of power anyway, because he's the most powerful. But I didn't have an overwhelming amount of support um, the way you see it now. But it would definitely have been beautiful to have that. It makes it makes a huge difference to know that you have that uh, that support coming your way. And that's why it's so great to end with, uh, with Ibtahaj with this question, uh, because Ibtahaj is part of a new organization called Athletes for Impact, precisely so athletes going forward can have this kind of support. Like, Ibtahaj, what, what's your vision for Athletes for Impact is my, my question. And also, I don't know if you knew this, but John Carlos is now the latest member of Athletes for Impact. He decided he wanted to join in. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I was also at that rally, uh, the Colin Kaepernick rally in front oh, of wow. NFL headquarters. And um, first of all, it was, I mean, I haven't been to that many rallies, but that was by far my favorite one. And it was interesting because you have all these, uh, all these people standing around there for Colin, who's not there. Um, and then you also, by law, you have all these police officers there. So many police officers. So many police officers, so many, like, the police chiefs, like, everybody's there, right? Everybody looks super tight, like, not happy to be there. Like, they don't really want to protect you, which is kind of scary. But um, I actually went to the rally with my dad, who is um, a former police officer. Uh, he's a retired drug detective out of Newark, uh, New Jersey, and... Um, it was just really interesting to me to see my dad in that space there to support um, Colin Kaepernick and um, his Least quest for social justice and what he's doing, yeah. um, but also to see that kind of uh, that contrast in the police who are there who, again, look very unhappy to be there, um, and my dad who has, I think, in a sense, like the shared brotherhood because they're both police mm -hmm. officers, um, but at the same time just, I mean, and not to paint all of NYPD with a broad stroke, mm -hmm. but... I don't know. I just felt like it was this very prolific moment to like be there, especially be there with my dad, uh, who's a retired police officer. But um, what I like about Athlete for Impact, I feel like it was almost born out of a necessity in a sense that we're kind of in this moment where um, you do have athletes on a larger scale using their platform uh, for social change. Um, but also, I mean, it doesn't exist anywhere. So it's almost like we, we have to have it. It has to, we need, I think, an organization that speaks to these issues in particular. And I also believe that it will encourage more athletes, not just professional athletes, but also on like the local high school collegiate level to um, speak out against social issues that I know happen on this campus that definitely happened at Duke when I was there and that continue to happen on campuses around the country. So um, I look forward to the work that we will do, uh, God willing, in the near future. And I'm hoping to get more prolific athletes like John Carlos and Mahmoud on board. Right on.
That's the panel. Again, thank you so much to everybody at Wake Forest University. Thank you, Melissa Harris-Perry. Thank you, Shanta Covington. Thank you, uh, Relisa Tutwiler. I really do appreciate everything you did to make this happen. And you know what? I hope we can do it again. Now I've got some choice words about what's happening in the National Football League. But first, a quick word from the second best podcast that is produced by The Nation magazine, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener. Okay, look, Start Making Sense is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts because it is truly politics without the boring parts. This past week was absolutely one of my favorites, and I'm not even going to give it away. No spoilers. So please, though, go to The Nation magazine every Thursday when it posts, or go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Start Making Sense, politics without the boring parts. And now, Back to the Edge of Sports podcast and some choice words. Okay, look, as we attempt to understand the meeting between many of the leading activist athletes in the NFL, the Players Association, and a select group of franchise owners last week, as well as Roger Goodell's train wreck of a press conference, it's important to remember where we started. In the summer of 2016, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed by police in Minnesota and Louisiana, respectively. Their deaths were videotaped, and the footage went viral. People mourned, people raged, people protested, and starting with San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick, NFL players, in a historically unprecedented fashion, joined this fight. They took a knee, or sat, or raised a fist during the playing of the national anthem, precisely to make people, that means fans, sponsors, media, team owners, uncomfortable and to raise awareness. Now after 14 months, what do we know? Well, Colin Kaepernick might have sacrificed his career for this movement. The other players who either took a knee with Colin last year or started this year have received death threats. They've lost sponsors. They've been threatened with suspension by team owners. They were mocked by sports media hucksters who laughed at the thought that they were accomplishing anything. They've had their jobs imperiled and been cursed by a president who, despite his own behavior, has the nerve to lecture people about their patriotism. Yet still they persevered. And what did it get them? Well, this week we found out. First, before the meetings had even started... Roger Goodell co-signed a letter on NFL stationery with Seattle Seahawk Doug Baldwin that was sent to the U.S. Congress in support of a bill called the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act of 2017. The bill would reduce minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenders. It's hardly radical legislation, but in the era of Jeff Sessions and his dreams of an extra-strength new Jim Crow, it matters. Then, at a meeting between Goodell and a select group of team owners, no changes to the rules were made to coerce players to line up, helmet in hand, for the playing of the national anthem, much to Trump's Twitter rage. NFL owners are now basically acknowledging that Trump's call to, quote, force players to stand for the anthem would cause a full-scale rebellion. This was a victory, an affirmation both of what's in their collective bargaining agreement and of their First Amendment rights. Players also received promises of financial commitments from the NFL for their social justice work. No dollar amounts have been named, but Doug Baldwin of the Seahawks has described it as significant. Now the protests, as well as the sight of Nazis in his hometown, also inspired Anthem protest supporter Philadelphia Eagle Chris Long 
to donate his entire salary for the year to scholarships for underprivileged youth in several cities across the United States. That doesn't happen without these protests. Lastly, these protests have helped launch a new organization to aid athletes in political and community endeavors called Athletes for Impact. Michael Bennett of the Seahawks is a part of it, as are basketball players Maya Moore and Diana Taurasi, soccer star Megan Rapino, former NBA player Baron Davis, and of course, as we talked about earlier in the show, Ibtahaj Muhammad. And hey, John Carlos is now a new member of Athletes for Impact after hearing about it at Wake Forest. Look, it's easy to be cynical about this, especially after Goodell's press conference last week, which was sort of like his assessment of all the discussions with the players. Just watching that was painful, with Goodell just ignoring questions about what he would do if a player were suspended for protesting. He also said, I understand how our fans feel about this issue, and we should feel the same way. Players should stand for the national anthem, end quote. The implication is that fans are of one mind on this issue, but polls actually show that fans are split, with the racial divide being particularly sharp. Goodell basically said, the concerns of our white fans are foremost on my mind. But his most cringe-inducing moment was when he preached, we have about a half dozen players that are protesting, and we're going to continue to work to try to put that at zero, end quote. First, it's more than half a dozen, but the statement in and of itself is vile, basically saying, we don't really care about any of this. We're just trying to shut this down without causing a full-scale player's revolt, end quote. Number one on Goodell's agenda is clearly a sponsor and owner-driven effort to restore the image of the NFL as a place where players shut up and play, but his wine is not going back in the bottle. Look, Roger Goodell has earned our cynicism, and it's understandable why people think that this is all a sham aimed to end this protest. But while these owners and Goodell have more than merited our distrust, I would argue that this is the wrong way to understand what has happened over these last 14 months. Instead, go back to the killings of Castile and Sterling. NFL players, despite their non-guaranteed contracts, short careers, and precarious employment, organized and have now wrested financial and political concessions from 32 of the most conservative one percenters in the country. That Goodell was so awful in his press conference is a testament to the odds these players faced in taking this on. And several of the leading activists are still going to protest and did this past Sunday because they understand that while the players have won a victory, the war is far from over. Trump will still vent His minions and bots will still send death threats. Players may even still be suspended, although I hope any who are sue the league back to the Stone Age. But what has happened thus far has been a victory. It's still a limited one, and it will be as long as Colin Kaepernick remains on the outside looking in. I think Michael Bennett said it really well after these meetings. He said, I think the first step to even being able to have a conversation is making sure that Colin Kaepernick gets an opportunity to play in the NFL. Before we even negotiate anything about whether we sit or whether we stand, there should be a negotiation about opening up the doors for Colin Kaepernick and give him an opportunity again, end quote. This is the truth, but it's still a victory nonetheless, and these days that must be appreciated, replicated, and even savored. And now it's part of the show that I call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. 
I just got a quick one this week. I got to do a just stand up to David Irving of the Dallas Cowboys who raised his fist during the anthem. Keep in mind, the Dallas Cowboys had nobody raising a fist on their sidelines until Jerry Jones started to act like the Cowboys were a plantation economy. And so David Irving is now challenging that. The players are mad, and Jerry Jones has to just sit there and take it. Although, I guess let's see if he does suspend David Irving. Let's just see him try to do that. And the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award? Sit your ass down! To Jerry Jones, sit your ass down. Now, before we wrap up the show, quick thing about Kaepernick Watch. We always do about the latest with Colin Kaepernick. Big congratulations to Colin Kaepernick, who just won the Puffin Nation Institute Award, which is going to fund more work with the Know Your Rights camps. This is a huge deal. It's incredibly prestigious. Years past, it's gone to people like Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice. I mean, like real giants in the social justice community. And the fact that Kaepernick is going to get this is a huge deal. It's an honor. So congratulations to Colin Kaepernick. But also congratulations to the Puffin uh, Nation Institute because you couldn't have picked, in my mind, a better person for this particular moment. It's just unbelievable to me. Good enough for the Puffin Nation Institute, not good enough for the NFL. I mean, this is the world in which we live in. Okay, before we wrap up the show, people might know that I'm an absolute NBA fanatic. That's my sport, that's where I live, that's where I breathe. That's where I cuddle up. So I've been waiting so long for this NBA season. I'm so excited about it. And I know the season has started. Believe me, I'm watching every game. But I've already tweeted out my picks. And since I tweeted out my picks, y'all could test me on this. And so you know I'm not lying about stuff just to, you know, like reading on what's happening so far in the season. So everything I'm about to say, that's some word as bond. So... This is what I'm trying to tell y'all. It's going to happen this year. These are my predictions, okay? All right. MVP, Kawhi Leonard. I just think that in a star-packed Western conference where everybody's got super teams and Kawhi is the only all-star on San Antonio, he's going to get a special kind of love uh, for keeping that team not just afloat, but at the front end of the Western conference. Rookie of the year. Ben Simmons. Now, I picked Ben Simmons for this, the seven-foot point guard of the Philadelphia 76ers, before I saw him almost single-handedly beat the Washington Wizards. And I have to tell you, the game was on ESPN, so Jeff Van Gundy was the broadcast team. And there was this terrifying moment as a Wizards fan where Jeff Van Gundy looks at the court and he just says, the point guard is right now the tallest person on the court. I mean, Ben Simmons is just a terrifying presence to me. I absolutely think he's going to win Rookie of the Year. Although I got to say, Lonzo Ball has started off very nicely. I mean, after that first game where Patrick Beverly sort of uh, climbed inside of his jock and then had him swallow said jock. I mean, it's been very impressive from Mr. Lonzo. Okay, my most improved player, and this is usually my favorite award. I'm giving this to D'Angelo Russell. I thought he got a terribly raw deal. Uh, in Los Angeles. A lot of it his own doing, no doubt about that. But now he's playing for the Brooklyn Nets. I think Brooklyn is actually sneaky good. I said that before the season began, and they have had a nice start to the season. Sucks about Jeremy Lin's injury, but in a weird way that makes this pick for D'Angelo Russell even better. It's going to mean more shots, more ball handling. I do like D'Angelo. 
Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert. I think the Utah Jazz are going to be sneaky good, and that's because Rudy Gobert is going to absolutely be the stifle tower this year and try to eclipse Tony Parker as the greatest Frenchman to ever play the game. But, you know, Tony Parker was born in Belgium, so that's a little sketchy to even say that. My sixth man of the year, Kelly Oubre Jr. of the Washington Wizards, although right now he's starting. So that might be my one pick that I regret the most. We could have foreseen the Jason Smith injury, but then when Markeith Morris comes back, he'll be back on the bench doing Kelly Oubre Jr. things. Coach of the year, Greg Popovich. Why? Because he's Greg Popovich and he called Donald Trump a soulless coward. That's enough for me. And the finals, it will, of course, this is what I said, it'll be Warriors-Cavs. Um, but if it's not, and I had to do like a fun pick, um, I picked the Wizards, who now with Gordon Hayward's injury for Boston, the Wizards look even better primed in the East, going against the Houston Rockets. Uh, because Chris Paul, man, he is just fully committed to figuring this out. And... If it's Wizards versus Rockets, not only will it be the most entertaining finals ever, but it'll be the Nene Bowl. Two of Nene's former teams, the Hilario Bowl. And so I'm very excited about that. So those are my NBA picks. I'd love to hear your picks. 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Read those out. Call us up. Let us know what them picks are. And guess what? We'll read some tasty ones on the air. And if I said any that you think are literally so stupid you can barely contain yourself, call it in. 401-426-3343, 401-426-EDGE. To everybody out there listening to the show, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you to everybody at Wake Forest and Lehigh University, two places I was in the last week and meeting people who listen to the podcast. Man, that makes me feel so good. Big shout out to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who I found out listens to the podcast. That's so dope. And thank you to everybody who's been giving the show ratings recently or writing comments. That stuff makes a huge difference. Please keep doing so. It takes two seconds and it supports this podcast massively. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to my producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigaboo. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.